Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. Coming up this fortnight, it's the Monument of Monuments, Paris-Roubaix, plus on-demand highlights of the Tour of Flanders. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action for less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. And you'll be able to watch all your favourite races, including grand tours, monuments, classics, major stage races and more live and ad-free on GCN+. This fortnight, catch a full weekend of women's and men's racing at Paris-Roubaix on the 8th and 9th of April. Will the Trek women triumph for the third time in a row? Could an informed top pickcock take Britain's first ever Hell of the North? Along with all this live action, GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens, so you never need to miss a key moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu forward slash cyclist15. Welcome back to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm Emma Cole and today I have Robin Davidson with me, editorial assistant at Cyclist and a true lover of all things pro cycling. Robin, it's your first time on the pod. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you for having me here. (laughs) (laughs) What's been happening in the world of Robin? Oh, so much. You know, I could barely tell you from the amount of stuff that I've had going on. Um, no, you know what? It's been it's been interesting. You know, just watching a lot of a lot of cycling races, doing some painting, watering my plants. Ooh, what are you painting? Oh, you know what? It's it's just a mix. Sometimes, like sometimes I'll paint lava lamps. Sometimes I'll paint uh, like painted Strada Bianchi the other week. You know, when when that was on. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. And do you just do totally freehand? Yeah, yeah. So I painted like the little horse in Strada Bianchi as well, you know, when that was running alongside yeah. Debbie Follerick. <laughs> Just included that for, for, for a laugh. Yeah, it's how I de-stress, you know. But I'm looking forward to uh, to our birthdays. Very excited. I know. In April. Yeah, both of us happen to be in April. So it's, you know, best month of the year. <laughs> Honestly, like it's, no one is going to disagree with that. They'll be like, yeah, that's so true. And we have the whole month to celebrate. Like, I'm not talking about a birthday. Like, it's going to be a birth week. Like, you get a week, then it's your birthday, and then I'll have the next week, I think, is how we can divide it. I like it. Mm. big question is, what's your star sign, and do you feel like it is a reflection on you? Do you like star signs? Oh, great question. Um, well, I'm a Taurus, 
So I can hear like collective laughing at the moment because everyone's going to be like, yeah, she's so stubborn. And you know what? Yeah, I am. I'm stubborn. I like food. Like those are the really like stereotypical Taurus things. Um, I like it though. I think it's fun. It's, it's, it's fun to have a little, a little giggle and a laugh. I like, I love going and looking at stars. Like I just, I love it. I find it so relaxing. I don't know if I necessarily believe like, you know, wholeheartedly behind it, but it's a fun, fun little thing to have. Are you a Taurus? I'm an Aries. Get out. Which I know, outrageous. Um, and every time I look at, um, you know, the typical traits of an Aries, mm. I'm like, damn, how do they know this? <laughs> what are the typical traits of an Aries then? Hit us. <laughs> Quite fiery, uh, optimistic, enthusiastic, all that kind of stuff. And then the, some might say negative, are like impulsive, reckless things I'm like I just like looking in the mirror (laughs) I didn't need this uh therapy session on a (laughs) I know but it is but then again I sometimes feel when you read someone else's star sign then you can also attribute those attributes to you yeah I feel like especially on TikTok you'll see like a really generic form of post and it'll be like Taurus does this, Pisces does that. And it's like, Mm. they're kind of deliberately trying to reach everyone in a way they'll be like, oh my God, that's so me. But uh, it isn't. I have to say, I don't have TikTok. I have to, it's not my thing. I think there's too many social media channels out there and I can't cope with another app. I don't like the amount of time I spend on there. So that's probably Mm. great that you don't have it. (laughs) Do you have a time limiter? I mean, yeah, but I would just bypass it when the time limit came up anyway. I'd be like, well, I'm scrolling. I don't have any self-control, you know? Maybe that all Tauruses don't have that. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Something we need to look into. Uh, But let's move on and welcome our guest for this episode, who is Pippa York. She's an ex-pro cyclist who was first to win a classification at the Tour de France. She won the 1985 Volta a Catalunya, the Tour of Britain and Criterium de Dauphiné amongst many other podium finishers. Pippa was known as Robert Miller during her pro cycling years. And now Pippa is working in journalism, sharing her expert knowledge and analysis on all things cycling. I'm really excited for this one. I think it's going to be a good, good podcast. Yeah, me too. I think it's going to be a good one. So let's welcome to the show, Pippa York. Welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Pippa. It's great to have you with us. Um, you've been an extremely successful pro cyclist. You've won the polka dot jersey in the 1984 Tour de France, where you finished fourth overall. You then retired in 1995, and you've since moved into journalism. To go right back to the beginning, how did you get into cycling? Well, I was born in the centre of Glasgow. So for me to go and see countryside, I had to have a bike. So when I was really young, I, you know, we used to cycle out to Glasgow Airport and watch the planes take off. But then I could kind of get more into it um, and I wanted to go a little bit further. And about the same time, I noticed a magazine in a news agent's, um, I think cycling called, called Cycling International. And it was a Tour de France edition. And I thought, that looks really interesting. And then on ITV, they had World of Sport on a Saturday midday from 12.30 to 1 o'clock with Dickie Davis as a TV presenter. And um, they used to show little snippets of the Tour de France. And I thought, that looks really interesting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I didn't think, you know, I didn't think 
oh, I want to do the Tour de France. I thought, I wouldn't mind trying a bit of racing. And that, so, so that kind of got, got me into it. I joined a club and, you know, and I started racing as, as, a, as a last year in the junior category. Um, and it kind of went okay. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did you then realise you had the talent to go pro? The first year as a junior, you know, I was kind of, I got competitive. You know, so I did about six races and I, you know, by the end of the six races, I was getting competitive. So the next year, um, I was really competitive, you know, so, uh, you know, I could win races. And then when I moved up to the senior level, it took about, you know, nine months before I was competitive at that, that level. And then I realized, you know, it would be a better life than working in the factory <laughs> or working in a shoe shop. Um, and, I, and, you know, and the clubs that I joined, you know, they, they kind of encouraged me to, to, you know, to keep progressing. And I kept progressing. So, you know, by the time I got to about the, the end of my first year as a senior, I thought, I want to be a pro cyclist. Which is, a, and in my environment, that was, you know, that, that was kind of really unheard of. You know, nobody was a pro cyclist. <laughs> um, so I think that's when I kind of realized that I, I had a certain level of talent, but when you never know when that is going to run out. So every year, you know, you, you think, okay, I need to, you would, I would race at a certain level, you know, so racing nationally, you know, once you become competitive nationally, it's another couple of percent to step up to international level. So I thought, okay, so how do I modify what I'm doing to improve that 3 or 4% to international level? So I do that and I get to international level and then I'm thinking, okay, so now I'm at international level. How do I get to the top of there? And it's another 3 or 4% or whatever, you know, whatever percentage difference it is. And I give it more of my time, you know, invest in it more, as people say nowadays. <laughs> and I reach, in, I reach the top of international level. Now, so now that I'm at world level, but I'm in the amateur ranks, and then I'm thinking, well, this is okay. I, I from being at the top of you know, kind of world amateur level, I can become a professional. But, but then when you step into the professional ranks, everybody's been at world level in <laughs> the amateurs, and you never know where you're going to end up from there. So then you know everybody's talented, everybody's been national champion, and you don't know where you're going to end up from there. So you know then you kind of it, it took me a couple of years to kind of settle down into that and. And then I was progressing, you know, a couple of percent every year again. And then, you know, the, you, go, you go from being a kind of at the bottom of the hierarchy in the pro team to being in the middle, to having a specialist role, to, you know, and then to becoming, you know, a designated leader. So, and each of those steps is a couple of percent. But at any of those levels, I could have, that could have been it. You know, I could have run out of talent or health or, or couldn't cope with the workload anymore. Or, you know, mentally, I didn't want to do it anymore because it gets more and more stressful but luckily I didn't you know I, I kind of reached the you know top 20 top 10 in the world and yeah <laughs> you just you know you because you do so much work to get to that level it doesn't seem that strange you know even though it's strange to say you know you think oh I progressed a couple of percent every year I said well not everybody does. So, you know, you're kind of lucky that you cope with all the different things that you need to cope with. Are there particular highlights from your racing career which really stand out? In what way? Perhaps like a year when you really like improved a certain percent or a race that you were like, that was incredible amounts of fun. You know, there was times when I, you know, when I had difficult periods. 82 was really difficult. I had a really difficult start to the year. It was the end of my contract year and I thought I I might be getting kicked out. You know, you never know if you're going to be you stay strong enough. And then in 83, I progressed 
quite a lot, probably you know, at least 5% from where I was in 82. And I was given better roles in the races. So I was kind of the designated climber who helped the, you know, the team leader. And then I did the Tour de France and I won a stage. So then I realized, you know, if I can win stages at the Tour de France, I can do this for, for you know, a reasonably long time as long as I don't kind of overtrain too much, do too many races, you know, or if I'm lucky, you know, and I'm lucky that I don't get involved in too many accidents where I really hurt myself. Yeah. So, so probably 83 was the biggest step up in terms of percentage gain in my performances. And obviously 84 was a big, big moment. And you kind of went, you brought a lot of national recognition. How did you cope with that? I was okay with it because, you know, so, so maybe three when I won a stage and I'd worn a polka dot jersey for a few days, I kind of realized that I could win that classification. So then it was just a matter of stepping up, you know, all the things that I did properly, you know, the, so my diet and my training and kind of making sure I was rested enough uh, and all the things that go with being a pro bike rider. So all those things, again, I stepped up to another level. I took it not much more seriously, but a bit more seriously. And then I just worked hard. And, and then so, so when I did win the, the, the polka dot jersey, it wasn't a surprise because from the races going to there and from the amount of training and the amount of time I had spent, you know, improving, it wasn't a surprise. I just thought, right, I've done that now. now so now can I do it again or do I, what, where do I go next from here? In terms of sort of training and nutrition, how different would you say it is between them and say, for example, today? So nowadays you have a nutritionist, so you have a dietitian. Before then you had to learn all those things. So you didn't necessarily have a coach. So you learn by trial and error, the same with your diet. And because it's pre-internet, then you had to read things. I know that's a concept that people don't always... (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) You know, what? You had to read things from the library? (laughs) Um, Yes, so, you know, so I would read books about, um, you know, diet and nutrition and and what levels of protein and carbohydrate I needed and how that affected what happened when I was in competition and when I was doing certain training, you know, so I had to learn all that stuff, so I did. Um, And quite often because it wouldn't be cycling specific, I would have to learn it from other sports. Um, So it's just a matter of learning all the things that I needed to, to know about myself to improve so I would learn in what situations I would make the wrong mental judgments. So, you know, now, now you'd have what, psychological profiling. I had to do that on myself to find out what, in what situations I reacted badly or I could, I could use, you know, kind of negative outside forces to me, um, to my advantage. So I, I, I learned all that stuff. Whereas nowadays you have a psychologist on the team um, you have a dietitian, you know, you have a coach. Um, whereas before, you know, that was all stuff that you learned on your own or from the people around about you. And do you think the current pros that don't have to learn all about nutrition that you had to, do you think they're missing out on something because they don't have to kind of delve a little bit deeper? Perhaps someone does it for them? I think that, you know, the, the top ones will actually learn what it means. So you have people who, when they're taught, they take it in and they remember it and that's it. Whereas you have other people who learn, actually learn what it means. Um, and they're the ones that kind of, usually they're the ones that progress a little bit better. So the difference between learning something and being told it, you know, so, so it's that, I think it's just a kind of general way of the words went. That there's more information and there's more education. So some things you have to learn, some things you can just say, oh yeah, I know that. 
but you know you know it because you remember it you haven't learned it i don't think that's a disadvantage nowadays i think that's just a that's part of progress yeah and obviously you did so well and you've inspired a lot of young riders especially i have you know the cyclist editor pete muir you inspired him to get into cycling um how how did it feel to be such an inspiration to young riders at a time when perhaps cycling wasn't as big as it is so so, so, when, I, so when i was a cyclist you know I, I was watching a race the other day and I think there was one one British rider in it. I've been in that situation where you go to a race in Spain or Italy and you're the sole person from your country. That happened quite a lot before, um, you know, because there wasn't many of us who came from Britain or spoke English. You kind of got used to it, you know. Um, it would be annoying when journalists came to the race and, and asked you kind of silly questions like, you know, like at the Tour de France, you know, you'd get the ordinary journalists turned up from one of the dailies and they would, they, you know, they'd be covering football or whatever, you know, rugby, cricket, and they'd get sent to the tour for a few days to, you know, to interview you. And then they would, uh, you know, ask you what you did in the winter for a job because they thought that, that, that after the Tour de France finished, you know, that that was it, you know, that was all there was. And you didn't have any other races to do and you didn't have a whole kind of, it wasn't seen as a professional sport so the, because they didn't really understand. That would be annoying. That would be really annoying. Um, I had no time for those people um, because they hadn't done their, their their prep to come and speak to me. In terms of inspiration, I think that comes with you know when you when you have a certain level of ambition and you 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 reach your your goals, and then you think, well, the pe- the people that come after me, they're going to have to really hurt themselves to <laughs> to um, you know to reach this level. And some people will be inspired by that. You know, they'll think, oh well, you know. Somebody from from my town or my country can do that. Why can't I do that? And I think that's quite often quite inspirational for people because they see somebody who they recognise, you know, from their community, and they, and you're there, and you you haven't got a funny foreign name, you know, you've got a kind of ordinary name. So I think the best example now of that is is Fred Wright. So Fred Wright's a really ordinary name, isn't it? <laughs> and you know, and you see him in races, you know, and he's he's with these Italians and Spanish, and it takes. As a commentator, it's quite hard to you know to pronounce them. And then you have Fred Wright, and I listen to the, the Spanish or the French commentators, and they they say the names properly, and then they say Fred Wright really strangely, <laughs> and I find that quite funny. But then you realise that you know, for for people who are just coming into the sport or thinking about kind of you know I wouldn't want me trying that to see that 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 person whose name they actually recognise instead of just kind of gobbledygook. Um, <laughs> Then that used to think, well, if Fred Wright can do it, why can't I do it? Um, and I think that's kind of the, what people need to see. They need to see some somebody that they recognise, other than just these kind of, you know, well, this is a foreign thing or, or, or a kind of overseas thing, you know, only they can do it. And when you were riding yourself, uh, did you learn, say, French or Spanish to communicate easier? Or is it sort of a sense in the peloton that there are words and phrases that everyone understands in cycling? So so be, so now English is the the language in the peloton. Before it was French. So so I learned French. You know, I lived there for 16 17 years. You know, I have a son who lives there. I, I was married there. I ended up thinking in French and losing English words. And if for example, one year I did 65 races in Spain before the Tour de France. So I was there all the time. And I think by the end of those that five months or so, it was always racing in Spain. I could speak Spanish, you know. I, well, maybe not speak it, but I could speak what I would call peloton Spanish. You know, the the, the words that you would need new 
you know, if somebody, if you punctured or there was a crash or you wanted food or, you know, where's the hotel? Is it going to be freezing? You know, all that kind of stuff that you needed for your day-to-day job. But by then you can speak Spanish. But the really interesting thing about working with people who come from different countries is you teach each other each other the swear words that you need. <laughs> because, in, <laughs> because in competition... It's not a nice environment, you know. It's not after you, so it's, you know. So you get in situations where you're arguing with people, and you abuse them, and they abuse you. And the first words you need to learn, and I'm, I'm almost sure this is the same when you go to any country, you learn the swear words and the bad words and the bad phrases to, you know, just to communicate your your situation of the time. So eventually, you know, eventually, I think I could swear in about eight, nine, ten different languages. <laughs> it <was> just, <laughs> and it's quite funny, you know. He, for example, the Russians. When the Russians came, I learned Russian swear words because they were, you know, and these Germans, you know, you you would learn words that they would get in your way or they would knock you out of place or whatever, or, you know, or, or do something, and you would swear at them, and they look at you, you know, because they'd be used to just communicating with the people they, that they knew. So it kind of breaks the ice a little bit. You know, you swear at them and they think, oh, wow, that person knows how to swear at me. And then you would teach them the English words and then you would hear them swearing at other people. And um, it's not something you would take seriously. You know, it's, it's just one of those things that in, in competition that situations happen and you show your disapproval in a certain way. So is the peloton now just a bunch of multilingual swearing cyclists? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You, you you see it now now and again. You you see heated exchanges between people, and sometimes if you watch the you know depending on who they are, you can kind of I can kind of figure out you know what they're saying to each other. <laughs> <laughs> so funny you brought that up because I've heard that so many times throughout the years, and also in other sports. Like for example, I used to write about baseball, and there'd be Japanese players heading over to the United States, not speaking. Uh, English, and then they would learn to communicate through swear words. It was like their sort of breakthrough into the language, and it's how they would communicate. Yeah, and it's one of those things that, and you have to be really careful. You know, you have to kind of trust the person that's teaching you, because sometimes they'll teach you a phrase, which means a totally different thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, so you you have to trust them. You know, people would teach you a phrase. Um, and it would be something really, really bad. And you would think it was something normal. Oh. <laughs> so you would use it, you know, and people would go, well, that's not right. <laughs> you know, you go to the hotel and you ask for your room key and it's something totally different. And you think, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> so there's quite a lot of room for errors to be placed in people's minds. That's a good little practical joke, that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so then in the 85 Vuelta, we just thought we'd touch on it. Um, it's been referred to as like the stolen Vuelta. How did you feel about it then? And how do you feel about it now? At the time, I was pretty devastated. I never, I, I know there's been reports that said I'd never go back. I, I never said that. Um, I don't know who made that up. You know, when I got, when, when I got done over at the Vuelta, I thought that, you know, that was bad set of circumstances because of of my inexperience the you know the the fault of the director the fault of the team um and and the circumstances of the race meant that i lost but you know i went back the next year and i thought you know i can win this race well why would i not go back to a race that i can win but yeah at the time i wasn't i wasn't in a good place 
but you, you get over it quite quickly because the next race comes along, you know, a weekend later or two weeks later, and you're back in the same competition sphere and you get your race head on and you get on with it. And then, you know, at the end of the year, I went back and I won the second biggest race in Spain, um, La Volta. So that was kind of a little bit of revenge. But, you know, it doesn't make up for the fact that you might, I, didn't, I didn't win the Tour of Spain. And nowadays, how do I see it? I just see it as, a, you know, one of those racing circumstances. I never had any problems with Pedro Delgado. You know, I saw him last year. I was always friendly with him when I, in, in the races. And uh, it wasn't, you know, he was the beneficiary. He wasn't the instigator. So, you know, you, you race with people and you have rivalries with them. And at the time, you you have to hate them a little bit and they hate you. But then afterwards, when it's over, you know, it's over. It's, you, need, you, know, you need a certain amount of rivalry with somebody to, to make you try harder. And I think when most people, you know, you're done with competitions, they let go of it. And then you, you, enjoy, that, you enjoy that rivalry in a kind of certain way. Because it it kind of pushed both people or whoever it was, you know, to um to greater things. You know, it makes you it makes it more interesting when there's a rivalry. It becomes a, a kind of personal thing. Um, and when you, I used to see you know between other riders, and I used to you know quite enjoy the the mental anguish which it cost them, just because you know I I recognised it in myself as well. So um, yeah, th- those those things are always really interesting. But you can't, you know, once you've stopped, you can't really linger on them because it will just eat you. In terms of the 85 Volta, I know you said before that in terms of not having a psychologist readily available in teams at that time, you did a lot of the work yourself. Was that a race where you would look back, reflect on actions and take it, as you say, to the Volta Catalonia, which you then won? Was that an experience for you? Yes, absolutely. So I, I look at it, how, like, how much hatred I had for the people <laughs> involved, <laughs> which sounds terrible, but um, I could maybe explain this in another way. Um, so, so I took that anger and hatred of the instigators and the people involved and applied it to the race, that I, the, the, you know, the race that I wanted to win. So I wanted to win their second biggest race. Um, and they all thought I was going to turn up and be, you know, like meek and, and, and kind of downtrodden. And I wasn't, you know, I, I thought I'm going to eat you guys now. Um, <laughs> and that's one of the things that I had to learn, you know, how do, how do I take that anger of being done over or, or being put in a bad situation and then, you know, turn it around to my advantage, but not let it get too out of hand. Quite often, you know, it's hard to control your emotions in a bike race when it's not going well. It's easy when it, when it's going well, as long as you keep a kind of certain cap on it and don't get overexcited. But if it's gone badly, it's, it can be quite hard to keep control of that. And I think you see quite often also, probably the, the best example lately is um, Lopez when he's been at, at Movistar and he completely lost the plot. We've all been there. <laughs> and luckily, I'm, you know, most people it happens to in less visible circumstances. And you, you have to learn how to deal with those things because they are going to happen to you. And then, obviously, you were cycling for many, many years and you decided to retire in 1995. What goes into a retirement decision and how did you come to yours? Well, um, I didn't decide to retire, really. <laughs> Our team stopped. Ah. So it just ended, which is quite brutal, really. So um, um, our team went bust 
the week before the Tour de France. Um, I just won the national championships. And I really wanted to do a Tour de France as national champion, even though nobody would have known what the British national championship jersey was then. You know, they, it wasn't a thing. I really wanted to do a, a, a Tour as um, national champion, but I didn't get to do that, so it went bust. But, I, you know, you, as you get towards the kind of end of your career, you can feel it coming. I wanted to do a couple of more years because I still felt uh, competitive. And when I was no longer competitive, that was enough. I didn't want to just get dragged around and get a kick in every, every weekend. Um, so, yeah, you, I could feel it coming. I thought, you know, I, I'm not training with the same willingness as I used to. The things that annoy me are annoying me more and more. <laughs> um, you know, I was getting tired of staying in hotels. You know, I, got, I was getting tired of traveling. I still like racing, but I was getting beaten up more often than I was beaten up by other people. And that's quite difficult. Um, you know, you have a, a certain level of ambition and respect for what you're doing. And when you no longer achieve that, then it becomes, you know, it becomes not a chore, but it becomes more difficult. So I still like training. I still like racing, but I didn't, I started to dislike the other things that go around about, you know, in a, in a bike team. But yeah, I could see it coming. So for me, it wasn't, I didn't see the team going bus coming, but um, I was kind of getting prepared for, for, for it to end. And then, then it becomes a whole other chapter of negotiating, you know, what happens when you, when you retire. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, it turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling, with Ketone IQ, your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for, for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then HVMN's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour. And you can find it in all the usual places. Finding the right insurance deal for your bikes normally involves spending hours of your time getting individual quotes from multiple providers. However, this week's podcast partner, quotezone.co.uk, makes the insurance quote process quick and easy and provides quotes from a wide range of providers, including Yellow Jersey, Lacquer, Cycle Plan, and Bicmo, along with many more. 
In fact, QuoteZone compares more providers than any other UK bicycle insurance comparison site, meaning you're more likely to find a deal that meets your needs and budget perfectly. We've partnered with QuoteZone on a price draw to win a one-year subscription to Cyclist Magazine worth over £75. All you need to do is try out QuoteZone and you'll be automatically entered into the prize draw when you get a quote. Simply go to quotezone.co.uk forward slash cyclist and try out the comparison tool to be entered into the prize draw. Please note this competition is open to our UK listeners only and the winner will be selected at random and notified before the end of May 2023. How did you sort of enter into this new sort of after pro cycling chapter? I think like everybody else, you know, you have a couple of years where you go into a, a semi-depression of not having the same stimulus in your life that you had. So when you do competitions, you have massive highs and massive lows. And that's what you exist on. You know, so you're used to that, those kind of big waves of emotion, whatever they are. And um you lose all structure from your days. So you're not going training anymore. You're not going to races. You're not going to training camps. So then you have to kind of reassess who who you are, what you want to do, what you're capable of doing, because you've been a bike rider for maybe, you know, 15, 16 years. That's all you know how to do. You know, you might have no qualifications. <laughs> <laughs> you probably will have no qualifications. So then what can you do? You know, do you want to, do you want to stay in, in the sport and be part of a pro bike team or, or work for one of the national federations? So you have to make certain decisions about what you feel like you're capable of doing and what will bring you some kind of satisfaction. And you quite quickly learn that you're not going to have highs and lows. You're going to, every day is going to be what I would call a grey day where it's, you know, perfectly normal day. You know, you, you go to work, you do, do whatever. And you come back and there's no excitement and there's no highs and lows. And you have to get used to that. And you you see riders who retire and it probably takes them four or five, maybe 10 years to get used to that, that you are no longer somebody who people recognize. And if your ego takes a while to adjust, then, you know, it takes a while. Some people's egos never adjust. Which is one of those things, you know, that you you have ambition and ego and kind of respect for what you do. And you have to get used to that, you, that that's what you did and that's not what you're doing. <laughs> um, so there's a whole adjustment of of who you are afterwards. So you wear a bike rider, but, you know, and you have to accept that you wear a bike rider. You, it's, not, it, it's not something you're, you're no longer doing. Yeah, and I think for, a lot, for, for me, I, th- I would say... It probably took a couple of years before I kind of got used to the grey days, even though I knew they were coming and I recognised, you know, they were going to going to be there. But then I had a whole lot of other issues to deal with as well. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I don't know if they helped or if they, they became a hindrance, but yeah. But there's a certain amount of adjustment to be made when you, when you stop racing and you don't go to the airport with your suitcase, you know, and you don't come back from this. There's none of that anymore. It's just every day is a normal day, hopefully. <laughs> and I guess you sort of touched on your next chapter there um, as you renamed as Pippa. Can you tell us a little bit about that and at what point you wanted to become Pippa? 
So I, w- I would have been Pippa, you know, so if it, if it was nowadays, I would have been, you know, Pippa or Philippa or whatever my mother had decided to call me, probably from the age of five or six. So I would be one of those kids that everybody's arguing about, you know, the, the, the puberty blockers and all that stuff. I would be one of them, you know. So um, the amount of gender dysphoria I had as a, as a child and I had to cover up because it wasn't a thing that, you know, that... Even nowadays, you know, you see children, they, they, don't, they don't want to, you know, deal with it until they're later. You know, I would have been, Pippa, you know, at the age of five or six. Would I have been a cyclist? I had no idea, you know, because I had a totally different life. So, again, it was one of those things, so it's pre-internet. Um, and so my access to other people like me is non-existent. I quickly realized that being different in, in my environment isn't acceptable. <laughs> You know, so nobody's different. Everybody just is the same. You know, you, anybody who's different gets beaten up. You know, it's one of those things at school, you know, the, the, the kids that get picked on are the, you know, the kind of wimpy kids. So you're not a wimpy kid. Yeah. So I went through probably to my mid-20s, you know, before I realized what was, what my issue was. You know, once I'd learned, a f- once I'd learned a few things, you know, from books and TV programs and, and seen, you know, now and again, seen a trans person in real life. And recognizing what they were doing was what I was. Yeah. So then I had to make a decision. Is it acceptable for me to transition as a pro cyclist in the, in the environment I have with the profile that I have? No, it's not. You know, it just isn't. It's the 1980s. It's, it's um, rampant homophobia, fear of AIDS, you know, all that stuff with the Thatcher government, you know, this thing called Section 28, which is the banning of education of um in schools of any kind of different lifestyle um so i made a decision to deal with it once i stopped but even then it's such a a massive thing to deal with as an adult it takes a number of years before you end up in a bad enough place that you the only way out of it is either to transition or something drastic is going to happen so yeah so that's when i know i decided i'll deal with my gender issues once my cycling career is finished and I have options of what I can do which wouldn't have been available to me if I so if I transitioned as a a child that would have been better for me socially would have been better for me in my kind of circumstances of being a a young you know a a 20 year old mid-20s person in the 1980s I'm not sure. And how did your transition affect your like relationship with the bike? Did you cycle throughout the years you were transitioning? Now, so once you start on medical treatment, a whole heap of changes happen. So weight gain, muscle loss, complete loss of the same motivations. Uh, and I didn't want to be muscly anymore. I didn't want to have, you know, veins and continue at five, you know, somewhere under 10% body fat. You know, it didn't look good. You know, it didn't want, I didn't want to do it anymore just because it didn't, it, it wasn't who I wanted to be. So in terms of cycling performance, drastically different, (laughs) (laughs) which I can sum up in in a really easy way. As a pro bike rider, you come to a hill, you look at it and you think, will I change gear or will I stand up? Nowadays, when I started transition, I would come to a hill and I would think, okay, I'll change gear and I can't stand up. 
the use of the kind of like use of gears and equipment and, and kind of realizing that's what normal people you know kind of how how they oh they see a hill and they go oh, Jesus how am I going to get up there which <laughs> that, that never happened before at pro level you the terrain is rarely an obstacle it's the speed that you go over it so so that that's the difference so when I transitioned and I started down the medical route you know instant weakness which was okay I I I actually enjoyed feeling that weakness because I knew that I was moving from where I where I had been to where I wanted to go and I was okay with that but yeah I had to learn to use gears because I never <laughs> used gears you just think oh I don't know I don't need to change out the big ring to go up that hill because I'll just stand up and lean on the gear a little bit whereas now I think oh no I'll just go around that hill you know I'll go a longer route just to not to go over it because it would hurt me so now now cycling hurts it hurts in the same way, but at a much slower speed. And obviously, when you mentioned to your friends and family that you wanted to transition, how was that? Can you tell us a bit about it? Transition's a bombshell for everybody. You know, it affects everybody around about you. So, you know, your children, your friends, your partners. You don't know how that's going, to, how they're going to react. There's no way that you know that how somebody is going to take it. So, there's no guarantee that those people who are around about you are going to stay with you. Um, you you'll lose certain people and certain people will come along who are happy for you to transition and if your relationship survives great and if it doesn't well you you're kind of aware of that when you would transition you know so so you, when you make the kind of first decisions you become aware that you might lose certain people in certain relationships um, as you transition and it's quite difficult to i think i think probably the most difficult thing is telling my children because they think they're more worried about are those changes going to change that relationship that you with him? Are you no, no longer going to be that that parent and that loving person to them? So that's probably the the most challenging thing on a kind of deeply personal level. Alongside you know when you tell your partner or your wife or your husband or whoever it is, um, they've probably seen it coming you know beforehand. You know they've got they've got an inkling. Whereas your children, you know, they're just kind of oblivious to what adults do. So yeah, but it is it is a, a massive thing for everybody to deal with. I, I tried to explain it in, in in certain ways. Is that I mean I don't know what your circumstances are, but if you went home tonight and um, your partner said they were going to transition, how do you deal with that? So you might be moving to a same sex what's seen as a same sex relationship. Are you okay with being seen with that? You know, are you you might be comfortable with other people who are in that situation, but not you know it's not for you. So. When you tell people you're trans and that you've transitioned, quite often you can see them kind of trying to work out, you know, well, how does that work? You know, not in terms of, you know, a kind of bodily functions or whatever, but in terms of, of relationships, you know, if that happened to them, if, you know, so if a woman came home and her husband suddenly said, oh, I'm going to transition, how does she deal with that? Is she okay with being seen as in, that, in that way? Then she has to tell her, you know, her parents maybe. Yeah. Is she okay with that? Quite often you can see people, you, know, you can almost hear the noises of their brain kind of trying to process this. You think, well, would I be okay with it? I mean, you know, I'm okay with kind of you having done it, but would it be okay in my circumstances? Well, what if, you know, what if it happens to my best friend? You know, and you can see them all kind of trying to process it and thinking, whoa, this is really difficult. <laughs> this, this is really complicated because it changes the whole dynamic of how you're seen socially. So all your friends... Everywhere you go, you know, suddenly you become, so you go from this, the straight couple to suddenly the same-sex couple. Not everybody in your social circle is going to be okay with that. 
So, and I can see you guys thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so it's one of those things that, you know, it's a bombshell for everybody and you don't know who's going to be okay with it and you don't know how it's going to turn out. But for some reason you do it anyway because that's, you know, that's the, the deal that you've been given. And how do you feel now in yourself? Do you feel like you're in a good place now? So before, I would say I was happy 5% of the time. You know, so as a pro bike rider, my happiness would be that 5%, you know, that in my life. Whereas now my 5% of thing is, is, is what I'm unhappy about as a woman. So, you know, wrinkles, fat, you know, <laughs> legs not long enough, you know, not the right shape. So, you know, all those kind of things that, that, that women kind of are annoyed with themselves, you know, that these kind of respect and, you know, what you, oh, I wish I was like that, or I wish my hair was this way or that way, or I didn't do this or I didn't say that. Um, so, so it's kind of moved drastically to the, the amount of happiness that I have personally is, is totally changed. That's amazing. And you're preaching to the choir about wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? You know, you, you see, you see other women in the street and you think, oh, I wish I looked like that. And you know that they're thinking about something and they go, I wish I looked like that. You know, and it's just one of those things yeah. that you you have to beat yourself about. You know, that's probably the only thing I've got to kind of moan about now. No, that's really amazing. And that's like it's so lovely to hear that. Um and I guess on the not so amazing side of things, you touched on it briefly, but there's been some kickback about trans people competing in sports. What's your view on that? For example, Emily Bridges. Um, and the whole British cycling fiasco. <laughs> Where do you sit there? <laughs> so I, I don't have to call it a fiasco. I'll use your ref- reference in that. Um, you know, people make assumptions that because you've been an athlete and you transition, that you keep all those attributes, whereas you don't. You you lose so many of them within the first six months. So all the things that that make a difference between the male and female physique change very drastically quite quickly. So within the first six months, you've, you've lost your, hem- your red blood cell count, so your hemoglobin level goes down to a female level. You lose a certain amount of muscle mass. You gain, you gain weight. Your motivations aren't the same. You know, you, so you don't have this, because your testosterone is so drastically reduced, you don't have the same motivations and aggression. Um, nobody ever asks the transitioned athlete, what happens? They make an assumption that you exist in the same level of strength and recovery and ability to sustain a certain workload. And it's not the reality of it because um, you know I've had to inform myself so much about this. Um, so, so the male body needs roughly 10 times as much testosterone as a female body just to function. And from, you know, from cancer cases where you have to reduce your testosterone and from people who are injured, injured and lose their legs and their genitalia and that kind of thing. So amputees, um, people who become disabled, like, you know, injured soldiers, whatever, who lose, you know, ended up in a wheelchair. The medical profession knows what happens, you know, in the case of, you know, a total what's called androgen deprivation. So it's a loss of all your testosterone and your ability to produce it. So they know what happens to the male body when, when that occurs. But somehow that doesn't apply to people who transition, which is exactly the same thing. So for some reason, th- those things aren't applied to that loss of that um, testosterone isn't applied to the 
the trans woman athlete. And we know what happens when a man transitions to a woman, you know, in, in terms of estrogen intake. Also, that's not applied to the trans woman athlete for some reason. And there's just this assumption made that the, the athletic man becomes the athletic woman with all the attributes of the athletic man. And none of these other things which happened, you know, the weight gain, the loss in red blood cells, you know, um, the loss in muscle mass. None of that None of that seems to be taken into account. And it's really complicated to explain, you know, quickly. And, and I get the argument, you know, when people say the average man is, is stronger than the average woman. Yes, they are. But the average man doesn't transition. <laughs> and the average, the average man is not an elite athlete. So, so when, you're, when your body is, is actually the thing that you work with, every little thing that can affect its performance and its output becomes a massive deal. For, for example, as, as an elite athlete, if you're injured and you have a month out, it takes you roughly two months to recover and come back. As an ordinary person who does no real sport, if you have a month off of doing no sport, it makes no difference to you. You know, you come back, you're as crap as you were before. <laughs> and quite often, you, I'll see a number of, you know, you, I'll see a number of reports and kind of policy documents based on people, trans, trans women who do no sport, and they start to transition and they lose, say, 5% muscle mass. But these are people who do no sport, you know, but they lose 5% of their muscle mass. And that's applied to people who, you know, at elite level or who actually do athletics. Whereas if you actually are an, an, an elite athlete, if, even if you lost five, just 5% of your muscle mass, it would be a massive thing. You're no longer competitive at whatever level you are. And it's not taken into account the, the, the weight gain that you've had from taking estrogen. So there's a number of things that take forever to explain. And then people will say, well, but the average man is, is, is stronger than the average woman. And you just think, well, you know, you're not going to give me eight minutes to explain this. <laughs> I know the average man is stronger than the average woman, but the average man doesn't transition. And, and people come in, in all different shapes and sizes. And, and it's this assumption that, so if I take my own example, I'm one meter 71. And when I competed, I weighed 56 or 57 kilos. If I take a woman athlete who's one meter 80 and weighs 75 kilos, she's stronger than me, but I'm banned from sport because I'm a trans woman. It doesn't make any sense. You know, even if I kept my, my 57 kilos of, of athletic ability, but I wouldn't, you know, I now weigh 10 kilos more with 15, 20% less athletic ability. So I'm, I'm as crap as a normal person. <laughs> and now I have to use the gears of my bike and think, oh, I can't go up that hill. I'm not going up there. <laughs> I'll have to walk up, you know. So, and, and it's one of those things that takes forever to explain. And, yeah. and, and people just think, and people don't want to hear about, you know, androgen deprivation and how it affects your, your protein intake and how that, that protein, in, you know, how that protein synthesis affects your workload and your recovery from workload. They don't seem to understand that as an elite athlete, you're training six, seven days a week. So if you go down to being able to train three days a week because you don't have the same recovery from because you're in androgen, androgen deprivation, which is, you know, lots of testosterone to recover, you're no longer an elite athlete because you're not able to train enough to be elite level. And I wanted to ask as well, how do you 
cope with the hostility around not only being not only being a trans cyclist, <laughs> but you know your existence just as a trans person. Some people are uh, offended by. How do you deal? This is just. How do you um, how do you cope with that? I know. See, you know, it all comes down to changing rooms and toilets. So, so I, I keep reading this. You know this. Oh, we don't want you in changing rooms and toilets. And I think, well, I, I, you know, I've been transitioning, you know, for, you know, I'm beginning to women's changing rooms and toilets, you know, for, for more than two decades. I've never, ever seen another trans person in there, ever. You know, in, in my 20-odd in my years, you know, coming up for 30 years, of, I've never seen a trans person. I'm the trans person in the changing rooms. I've never met anybody else. So I think how... How rare is it that that I see another trans person? In so I go into town. I might go into town today. I don't expect to see anybody else who's trans. And how how do I cope with it? I think it's really disappointing about the you know the the level of is it an inner anger that people have a distrust of you. So it's roughly one in six people don't want to have a gay neighbour. They don't want to they don't want to live next what? to somebody who's gay. And if it's trans, I can see your mouths fall open. <laughs> and if you're trans, it's one in four. And you can look it up. Oh on, you, can, you, can, you can look it up on Google. You know, so this is, the, you know, they do polls of this stuff. And it isn't that because people have a fear of you. They just don't want the, the potential crap that comes with it. You know, so you, you, know, you have homophobia, you know, and racist and sexist people. And certain things people want, you know, so to be racist, people won't admit to it anymore. You know, oh, I'm not racist, you know, but, but they don't want to live next to black people. You know, so roughly one in six people don't want to live next, to, next door to the gays and, and one in four, you don't want to live next door to the trans. How do I deal with that? It, it can be quite depressing. So I, where I live, there's nine houses. <laughs> so you can see what I think straight away. Two of those people don't like me. <laughs> How do you cope with that? I don't know. You you can let it really eat you. You know, you can become really depressing. Or you can just get on with your life and think, well, I don't know why you don't like me. I don't really have an opinion about, you know, what you do. But it, it can be difficult. And I, I think I rely a lot on my kind of psychological profiling training that I had from competition days where I've learned, you know, people who shout stuff at you from the side of the road. What, how do I? How do you deal with that? You know, do you take it in and it hurts you, or do you take it in and you use that energy? You know, their disgust for you or their hatred or their taking the Mickey out of you. Do you use that against them? You know, to to and against the people that they're encouraging to beat you. So yeah, so you know, so there's kind of ways to to process negative energy into kind of a, something useful to you. But um, I think it's. We've gone through a really difficult period where it's where being trans or even being anywhere on the gay spectrum is becoming almost unacceptable again. You know, it it, it moved to a kind of an acceptance that people are gay, you know, and people are queer too. I think it, we're at the kind of tolerance stage. I mean, it depends on the politics of of where the government goes and and how society develops. But if we look at America and it, and it's becoming really presented as unacceptable to be trans yeah that could be quite difficult how do you hope to use your platform as a high profile sports person that has transitioned to help other people that are maybe thinking about it 
who want to do it or have already done it. Or do you see yourself, you know, not necessarily wanting or having that responsibility, you know, to to paraphrase, but to come at a different angle? So I, I take inspiration from my daughter who said, you don't have to do this. You know, you don't have to speak about being trans, you know, explaining what happens to transition, explaining what happens to the, the trans female athlete. And you don't have to talk about transition and how difficult it is in some, in some cases and how that people don't have to really fear you because you're not, you're just kind of trying to live your life happily. She said, you know, you don't have to do any of that. You can just continue being a, a quiet person and, and maybe do a little bit of journalism or you can talk about it. And that would be a really good thing. And I thought, she's actually right. You know, so, and my, my daughter said this when she was, I think, 14, 15. And sometimes you have to listen to young people and think, you know, what I'm thinking about, you know, I don't really want to face up to this. But then for the person who comes after me, you know, in the same way that being a, a, a successful cyclist inspires people to, to want to try that. Whereas, you know, transition isn't the same. You don't try it. It's, you know, it's either for you or it's not. Certain circumstances and issues, you know, if you don't see somebody else who's dealt with it and kind of been happy and successful afterwards, you might not want to go through that. You might not know what to do. So um, I, I look at her and she said, you know, you don't have to do it, but it'd be really good if you do. And I thought, yeah, that, that's actually right. You know, there'd be times where I find it really difficult and I have to process what happened and kind of learn from it. But there are times it's, it's, it's actually quite useful to me as a person and how my social development is. So, yeah. And I think, you know, when you, as you get older, it's, it's quite easy to get stuck in that same way of thinking when, you, when you're in your 20s. And I read this really interesting thing the other day about how people always see you. You know, so even when you get, you know, so you get to my age and I'm, you know, I'm about to get my pension. But people always remember me as the person who was 27 or 28. So when I meet people now, you know, and, you know from my generation who I raced with, it's true. I imagine them as that 28-year-old person that I raced with. And then I meet them and, you know, and they've lost their hair and they've got wrinkles and, you know, and they're fat. And, you know, <laughs> they're old people, you know, like myself. I'm an old person. And, and you kind of think, yeah, I do actually think, you know, I do remember that person has been 27, 28, kind of peak of their life, you know, their kind of existence. So, yeah, and you have to kind of, I've realized that it'd be quite easy to be stuck with that mentality, of, of not learning. And so the, my resistance to certain things, I think, yeah, I have to put myself in that situation because otherwise I'll never learn what younger people are thinking. So when my daughter says to me, yeah, you know, it'd be good if you do that. Yeah, that's a, I have to take that in, even though it might be difficult. Yeah, that is, I think that's awesome. And interesting what you're saying about listening to young people as they yeah, can really, really give you some good advice. And now you're back involved in cycling. Uh, you're doing various roles. Can you tell us a bit about what you're up to? So people think I'm a journalist. <laughs> they think the um, same thing about me, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> I describe it as I tell stories. You know, so I write, I write stories down and I try to you know, make them entertaining and nice to read and they kind of flow in a certain way. I can do race reports, you know, um, but I don't think it's the best use of, of my kind of journalistic talent. Um, so so I, I work as a journalist and sometimes I do commentary and sometimes I do human rights and that kind of fills my days. The, the, the thing, what do I find the most difficult? Oh, meeting deadlines. 
uh, <laughs> always meeting deadlines. I I tend to, I don't work very well before twelve o'clock in the morning. So so till midday, no inspiration to to write anything, and all my best work is done probably after midnight. So when I have a deadline, and it's say a certain date, say it's the eighteenth or whatever, at midnight on the eighteenth, I'll be doing it. And it will arrive for whoever needed it on the 19th in the morning and it will be there. And as long as they don't look at when the email was sent at three in the morning, then then that's fine. So deadlines I have a problem with. Commentary. I like doing commentary. And this was explained to me also by a, a fellow journalist who said, commentary is, is journalism without the writing. So it's easier in certain ways. It's probably more stressful because you you can't make that many mistakes and you can't go back and unsay something. <laughs> so I like doing commentary as well, and you know the the human rights things I get involved in. I think that's just because I want to be seen as a decent person because I don't always see myself as a decent person coming from a, a competition <laughs> background, which has so many of the things which don't make you a decent person because they're not needed in that sphere and in that environment. Can you tell us a bit about the human rights stuff that you're up to? I try, so, for example, with British Cycling, <laughs> we try to steer them in a, in a direction where they don't, where they make the right decisions or the, the decisions that they make are presented in a way which will cause, cause the least anguish to everybody. Or, you know, I do things with Stonewall as well. We go to events or... If I'm asked to do interviews or whatever for Stonewall, then I'll do them. Depending, you know, depending on which media it's for, you know. So I'm not going to go and do, you know, what's that? Who's that idiot? Piers Morgan. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to go on, on Piers Morgan. You know, at, at seven o'clock in the morning and argue with somebody just for, for the sake of an argument. You know, so I'll choose which mm. things I go to. You know, and. I'm not going to go and do certain radio programs where they're going to come up with somebody who hates trans people and is just going to shout at me, you know. So I choose the things that I want to do based on, on, the, on you know, the platform that is, is presented as. But, yeah, you know, so I, I've had to, for example, with the human rights stuff, I've had to learn about what non-binary is because I don't know what, I, I don't know what that is. So I've educated myself to, to try and understand it. I don't fully understand it. Because it's not me, and I, I think only a, a non-binary person can explain what it means to them. But I've had to learn what that is, and, and kind of process that. So I, I go, well, okay, that that's how it works. You know, in the, in the same way that they they be processing, you know, somebody who transitions, they won't understand it. So um, yeah, but I think it's it's quite important to to understand that the the whole kind of gay rights thing is more of a human rights issue than a, in a, a specific, you know. Oh, we're all queer, and you know, and, and you just have to accept it. It's, it's not that at all. It's just about you know letting people live as the, as they want to live, and if that makes them happy, then that person is more productive, and in a happier society, is going to be less stressful for everybody. Yeah, definitely. And just in your commentating, what do you think about the current crop of races, both men and women? Who's your favourite? So I have certain favourites. So so the cyclocross. <laughs> Season has just finished. My favourite in, in cyclocross is Denise Betsman when I watch when I watch it, the the women's race and and, and um, in the men's it's Lauren Sweck. So that's he's my favourite as well because he he seems quite he seemed quite downtrodden from the year before when he was at um, Paul Saucy's bingo team. So yeah, so those are my favourites when I in the winter. 
in the the road season. Oh, who's my favourite in the women's race? I, I used to like watching Lizzie Dynan because she was she was quite interesting. You know, she'd be quite aggressive for for a female rider. I, I think I quite like um, Balsamo. You know, who has just been world champion. I quite watching her, like watching her race. But then there's Lorena Webus who's really fast, and that's just amazing. So I like the dynamics of that as well. And in the men's side, oh, I think it comes down to, you know, the, the kind of famous three of, you know, <laughs> yeah. Van der Poel and, and Van Aert and then, you know, and Pidcock. You know, just for the for that kind of spectacle of what might happen. But Pagaccio's quite good as well because you can see how he's reacted to certain things that have been said about him and, and taken that kind of doubts and issues that people have with him and just got on with it and just murdered them. And and, and <laughs> he, he races with a, a naivety at certain times, which is quite refreshing for, for pro cycling. He just wakes up and decides to go on 50-kilometre breakaway solo. Yeah, so, so, he, so he, you know, so, so it, you know, something like Strada Bianchi, you know, he, he'll attack and think, all right, we'll see what happens. In the same way that when Pitcock attacked and he were, let's see what happens. And, and there's only certain races where that's going to be, you know, possible because, you know, to get organised behind is going to be too difficult. But that, that's good to see whether that makes Strada Bianchi a classic. Um, you know, that, that's another discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any predictions for who's going to win the tour, both men's and women's? Oh, the men's. I think the women's one's easier because then it's just going to come down to Van Vluten because she's so strong and she'll want to win it again. So, yeah, so the, the women's one is probably easier. The men's, I'd say Pogaccio is going to win again. Just because he's, okay. just because I think he's learned. I think he's learned that the, the mistakes that they made from the team car in, in certain. So the, the famous day when they they knocked a crap out of each other after doing the telegraph, and then a, what was it, the the Guandon or the Madalena afterwards? I don't think he'll do that again. I think they, they'll have a better control in the car of, of what happens. Uh, and the way he said about racing this year, he looks like he's got back that intent again. The you know. No hesitation to to leave the others behind, and it's not done in a way to humiliate them. It's done in a way that you know he thinks, right? I can just go away and leave you now, and he does. And, and his powers of recovery are quite remarkable. So I think it's you know he's he's going to go to the tour with a, a different mindset of okay, so Jumbo Visma are going to be a stronger team than, than UAE. However, it is not the strongest team that wins. It's always the strongest individual, mm. as long as you make no mistakes. So you can have the, the best team, you know, so we see that with Ineos. So they have a super team, but they don't have the strongest rider. So they can go there with, you know, three, four leaders, however, however many they decide. But that's, three of them isn't going to beat one Pogaccio or one Vingigo. So it, it just doesn't happen. It, it just never happens. You know, the strongest team doesn't win. The strongest individual does. On the subject of strong individuals, sorry, um, I want to know what you thought on Cavendish's move to Estania, whether whether it was, to be honest, regarded as a last resort, which is fair enough for his pro career, or whether he can break Eddie Merckx's record that he shares. I hope he does. And, and I've noticed he's actually saying it's not Eddie Merckx's record, it's his and Eddie Merckx's record, which shows that he still has that that commitment to um be, sort of to become his record i hope he goes to the tour i think it's getting more difficult for him because he the way that 
Astana is set up. It's not a sprinter's team, so he won't have the lead up that he enjoyed before. And as he's got, we saw when he was at quick step, you know, if he can rely on the best lead out, he can still win. But if he can't, it becomes more difficult because the other guys are as fast as him, if not faster. So if, if I think if he if he has the lead out and he begins to sprint, it isn't a done deal that the others come past. But I don't think he's the guy that's coming past them anymore. But he, he is capable of winning those. You know, he is capable of winning another stage. And then it's, you know, is the Stana the right team for him? Well, if it's the only team that's willing to take him on, you know, with his the conditions that he wants to be in, which quite rightly, you know, given his, you know, his achievements, he can demand certain things. You know, his, 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 his respect for him as an athlete, he will need certain, you know, a certain environment run about him. Um, so to present it, oh, he's too difficult. You know, he's demanded this, he's demanded that. I think, you know, you look at his Palmares and then you think, well, you know, it, it has a Wikipedia page on its own. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know that's how big it is you know so, so Mark Cavendish is easily the best British cyclist of all time easily you know he's miles in front you can say he's just a sprinter it is not that simple he's found himself at Astana um, it's a set of circumstances which is one of those things that pro cyclist has gone, has gone through a stage where everybody has to be under the age of 25 and once you get to 32, that's it, it's finished, you may as well just go away. And, this, 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 and it, it happens now and again, you know, it, before it was a stage of everybody had to be over 30, you know, and then they would send what they call the old people to the Tour de France, you know, once, you know, and it, it's one of these strange things in in, in cycling. Is that once you get past 30, 32, you, you're seen as this veteran. <laughs> Which is really strange because, you know, you step out into real life and you're young. <laughs> so, yeah. So for Matt Cavendish to find himself at Astana is just, I found it quite scandalous that he wasn't taken on by a, a, a team with which had, a, I'd say, a better pedigree than Astana. And especially for, for the the British media, you know, for, for our, our best cyclists to end up at a team which everybody regards as slightly dodgy. It doesn't yeah. look good. And I think I said it, you know, before, before when he we went to Quick Step and they took him on it on a minimum wage, and you know, and, and a bonus deal. The amount of coverage that Mark Cavendish gets when he goes to a race is is massive. You know, it's totally massive. You know, you you go to a bike race and Mark Cavendish is there. There's a crowd to see him, even if he's not doing well. There's a crowd to see him because he's the, he's the the greatest sprinter of all time. You know, easily as well. And people want to see that in action. So the the amount of coverage he gets just from being Mark Cavendish, even you know, even when he has really bad days on commentary, we'll still talk about it. You know, he gets dropped on a hill, and we we'll go, oh, "There's Mark Cavendish getting dropped," and we'll talk about that. Whereas you know, somebody else who who is dropped would just go, "Yeah, there's number so and so going out the back," and we we won't <laughs> spend any time on it because it's not worthy of it's well, it's not it's not worthy of talking about. It. It's just. It's not a thing that people expect to hear about. So, so yeah. from having Mark Cavendish on your team, is worth a certain amount of coverage straight away because it's a thing. 
yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how it all plays out. And obviously, fingers crossed, he breaks his and Eddie yeah, Merckx's record. Their, their record, <laughs> not Eddie Merckx's record. Yeah. Hey, I, I just want to go on record and say that he. I said he shared it with Eddie Merckx. We can run these tapes back. <laughs> I, I, I was really pleased when I heard him say that. You know, it's so people, I think it was in one of the, when he equaled, you know, the record, when he comes to the you know the press room and he does the interviews after the race, it's really interesting that he takes time to talk. You know, he doesn't. It's not just one sentence blurted out in about ten seconds that he's thought about it to get him out of the chair. You know, he's he's there and he thinks about it. And he and he, and he somebody said, "When are you going to break Marx's record?" And he, and straight away he went, "You know, it's our record." And everybody went, "Yeah, yeah," <laughs> and. You know, good point. It, good point. <laughs> it's not Eddie Mercy's record. It's his and Eddie Mercy's now equal record. Um, and that showed yeah. that he's not, you know, sometimes sprinters get a kind of bad deal for, for being dumb. You know, people think it's just a, it's just a, the one trick pony. You know, they sit on the wheels and somebody leaves them out and they come off the wheel and they do the sprint and that's it. So it's br- basically it's presented as brute force with no real kind of skill or having to manage yourself for the whole 200 kilometres that came before where everybody else got beaten up, but somehow the sprinter just sat there and nothing happened. And then, he, <laughs> and then they produced this sprint over, you know, 250 metres. And that's it. It was easy. It's probably the most difficult thing <laughs> to be a sprinter. It's just mad. And they, they have this reputation of being slightly, I think it's because it's kind of kamikaze thing, where they're, they're, they are nuts. You know, they, they are dangerous and and crazy and just nuts (laughs) and people assume that they're well to be nuts you can't be intelligent you know if you if you look at a corner and you think well if i break i'm going to lose 10 places but if i don't break i'm going to fall off well i don't break and i'll just see what happens and you do that every day you get a reputation of being you know are you stupid (laughs) and he isn't And, and most of them are you know, they they make they make a calculation of will I fall off? You know, is it worth falling off to win? Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and that and that's the environment they live in. You know, and I, and I kind of get and I kind of get that. I think yeah, they look at the you know they look at where they are and if if falling off means a chance of winning, okay, <laughs> yeah, go for yeah. it. <laughs> Call me crazy. Yeah. And, and when you say you're yeah. crazy, people think, oh, you must be stupid. But no, you can be crazy and intelligent and actually thought about it. And you think, well, is it worth falling off? Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, like tactically crazy. Oh, well, um, Pippa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting to us. It has been, honestly, it's been so interesting. And thank you so much for sharing all your stories. Um, we really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Hope you've had fun. Oh, massive thanks to Pippa for coming on the podcast. I feel like we could have chatted for hours. It was absolutely fascinating. What did you think, Robin? Honestly, it's kind of hard to pick like a favourite moment from that. Um, But at the beginning, because I did a degree in psychology, I was really interested to hear what she had to say about, you know, being her own psychologist for the team because they didn't have them in those days. Um, And I think how you sort of, take defeat or a snatched victory however you want to describe that falter 
and sort of turning it around and being like, well, I'm going to go Catalonia next year and I'm going to smash it. Like that's such an impressive inner monologue, I think. How about you? I definitely agree. And I loved the fact that then she said that it helped her during her transition and afterwards as well. I thought that was really cool. Like something key in the sport helps you with your transition as well. I also really liked how she mentioned that her daughter said it would be cool if she talked about her transition as well. I just thought that's such a lovely thing. And I thought it was really instructive how she said that she knew she was Pippa when she was about five years old. Yeah, I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, it was really beautiful. And and also the 5% happiness that she mentioned, that she was 5% happy when she was Robert as a pro cyclist. But now Pippa there's 5% that she's not happy about. So 95% happiness, which is mega, like for anyone, I think to yeah. have that percentage is huge, like amazing glass, you know, what's it called? Half full. Um, yeah. And, and, I think, and some. I think as well, like when she was applying like the gray day analogy, you know, it's not like great and it's not bad, you know, it could be applying to a transition or it could be applying to say a post cycling career. A lot of people are going to relate to that. Yeah, And I think it's great to know that you're not alone in all of this, really. There'll always be someone out there. Yeah, definitely. And it's I think it's really cool that now she's moved into a, like, a more journalism sphere. And I had expertise at the end as well, talking about Cavendish and all this stuff. I was just like, I want to know more. Your insight is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I thought she was really cool. And um, if you want to hear more from Pepper, she'll be at the Cycle Show at Alexandra Palace in London on Sunday the 23rd of April. So go get your tickets. Should be a good one. As for us, the Cyclist Magazine podcast will be out uh, in a fortnight, be the next episode. In the meantime, head over to the website, cyclist.co.uk, or pick up our mag, uh, which is in all good newsstands, and check out all our social media channels. All the links are in the descriptions. We'll see you next time. Today's episode is brought to you by GCN+. Plus the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. Coming up this fortnight, it's the Monument of Monuments, Paris-Roubaix, plus on-demand highlights of the Tour of Flanders. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action for less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. And you'll be able to watch all your favourite races, including grand tours, monuments, classics, major stage races and more live and ad-free on GCN+. This fortnight, catch a full weekend of women's and men's racing at Paris-Roubaix on the 8th and 9th of April. Will the Trek women triumph for the third time in a row? Could an informed top pickcock take Britain's first ever Hell of the North? Along with all this live action, GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens, so you never need to miss a key moment again. 
all of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu forward slash cyclist 15.